0: 1st Samuel chapter 2, and as you take your Bible, as we prepare to turn to the Word of God before we read, let's pray together. O Lord, we know that you are the God who humbles the proud, and you exalt those who humbly turn to you in faith for salvation. Our hope, O Lord, is in no other save in you. We come even to the word of God, asking that you would reduce our pride and bring us to that humble, steady place where we may look up by faith and lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done to rescue us from sin and condemnation and to rule over us. As a prince and a savior, we plead with you that you yourself, O Spirit of God, would cause us to hear and so rule us that we in hearing may not be hearers only, but doers of your precious and mighty word. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and you'll find it on page 225 in the Bibles that are in the pews. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. Because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars... Of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power Of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is God's holy word. There are moments, there are moments in life when things suddenly become clear that were unclear before. And for some of us, that happens at the birth of a first child. There's something about that child in your arms that sort of reorbits everything and centers all in another way. And this, in one sense, is really what is happening for Hannah. Hannah's life has been entirely reoriented, restructured by a child. She sees things clearly, and she prays, a sort of prayer that God will begin to fulfill in the history of David, of which first Samuel and second Samuel are about, but still incomplete in David. A prayer really only answered in the coming of the greater King Jesus, the Son of David. And so here we have before us a kind of coronation anthem. When a king ascends the throne, there is great pomp and ceremony, great singing, fanfares are made, all kinds of glorious things happen. This is a sort of pre-singing, if you will. A preparation for the great coronation to come. The king will rule. The Lord's exalted rule makes his people glad. That's the lens, really, through which you can view the rest of the whole book. That the Lord's exalted rule, through his greater son, the son of David, makes his people glad. We'll look at this, first of all, in verses 1 and 2. The Lord's rule is absolute and unique. That's what Hannah says in verse 2. Describing God, there is no one like him. He is utterly absolute. He is alone. There is none besides you. That's a theme in the Old Testament prophets, the transcendence of God. It's who he really is. There is no other God. Think of what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 4.35. Familiar words. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Or David, coming later in this same record, delivered from his enemy, sings in 2 Samuel 22, who is God but the Lord Who is a rock except our God? Do you think he's singing maybe Hannah's song again? Or Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. God alone. The absolute. The ruler over all things. There is No other. And he is, in his rule, not only absolute, but also unique. There is no one who is like him. He is the holy one. There is none holy, she sings, like the Lord. And his holiness is the reason that he's utterly unique. To be holy in his purity, his intensity of all goodness is to be entirely set apart from all other things and all his creation. His holiness is that which exalts him to be beyond and greater, transcendent over all things, and therefore makes him capable of ruling us and all things for our salvation. Now, we live in a pluralistic day, and the prevailing view, perhaps, of religion is that, well, they're really all alike, and there's wisdom to be found in every religion. Just look at Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity, wisdom in them all. And as long as you have a sincerity of feeling, a real devotion to your religion that's the the primary and essential thing but no the god of the universe this god alone god unique and absolute is the only one to be worshiped and any other worship to any other god by any other means is misdirected by the imaginations of men to false and non-existent idols there is then not any true likeness between the god of the bible and the so-called gods of this world. All others are false, all other hopes sinking sand. Our God alone, the God of whom Hannah sings, whom she has come to see with this wonderful clarity by the birth of a son and giving of him to God, is entirely without parallel, unique, beyond the puny insight of man, and all that we could explore unconstrained not limited by our understanding and that is the essence of what it means that he is god that he is absolute and unique and this is encapsulated in yet one more glorious word there is no rock like our god absolute and unique the mighty rock unassailable He cannot be moved. He's a shelter and a protection for his people. It's as if Hannah is singing that there is no other stable ground. He alone gives stability to his people and a certain hope to all who believe in him. Now notice with Hannah what this does. If this is the God who rules, and really this is what she's singing about and anticipating the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. If this is the God she is worshiping here, notice What that calls for calls out of Hannah and really must call out of us as well. Look in verse 1. Hannah rejoices, she says, in the Lord's salvation, and she says that her heart exalts in the Lord. Her strength, or some translations have her horn, which is a symbol of strength, is is exalted in the Lord, and her mouth mocks her enemies, derides her enemies. Do you notice that? Just... Catch that little triplet there. Her heart, her strength, her mouth. Having seen the salvation of God in a child, she offers herself up entirely to God. And to a careful reader of the Old Testament, this is, dare I say, deja vu all over again. Think about the foundational requirement of God's law. Deuteronomy 6.5. Love. The Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That which we love, we rejoice in. A sincere love for God makes our whole being to be glad, which is really what Hannah is here. To delight in God and to be glad in him with all that you are is actually to give him all that he is and deserves and to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law to delight in him and to be overjoyed and filled with him. Have you this delight in such a God? Hannah could because she saw personally and came to know the saving rule of God who gave to her this child. If we have seen his absolute and unique glory in his rule over all things, then we ought to be truly happy. And if we would be truly happy then we ought to think much upon his saving rule. And so, because of her joy, Hannah can say, and there's a very striking way in which it's phrased, my mouth derides or mocks my enemies. And Okay, who is this? Who is she mocking? Do you remember from chapter 1? Who was it that was mocking her before? Yes, it's Penina. That's right. She's mocking Penina, who had mocked her, Hannah, whose name means grace, Apparently accusing and saying, What grace is there for you, childless one? And now she has a son. God has answered her petition. Come to her with a glorious grace. But this really isn't just about Panina, is it? This is so wonderful because here Hannah, in a very what would initially appear to be a very small, maybe an insignificant domestic event, beholds the salvation of God. This is not even primarily about Panina, but all of God's enemies, even the powers of Satan that oppose us and the mighty acts that God has done to save us. She will begin through the course of this whole prayer and psalm to reflect upon how God brought his people up out of Egypt, to think upon how he saved them by a, man, a mighty hand, bringing them through the wilderness into the land that he promised. This great salvation is what she beholds in all that she she prays and sings. But as Hannah looks upon Panina and God's enemies, the words that she uses speak of her almost as if she had been mute before Panina's scorn. And you can imagine this. What would you say if someone says, you graceless one, look at this. What What is it that you've done that God would not have mercy upon you? It's as if she has nothing to say to this, mute and quiet, but now... Her mouth is opened. It's almost as if her jaw has dropped at what has happened to her enemies. Now, isn't that really our condition? And this is even the way that Paul describes the righteous sentence of God in Romans 3, that all mouths are stopped before the law of God. We have so many voices out in the world. News, things you get in the mail, Rumors you hear from friends. There are so many voices, and add your own to all of it. But what isn't being said? You ever notice the subtext? What is not said, the elephant in every room, is our guilt and our shame. We avoid by nature, we deny, we blame, we hide, we ignore it. That's our character from birth. Self-seeking, because our mouths are shut by the law of God to self-justification. But when the absolute, independent, unique God of salvation enters upon the scene, he lifts us up out of the miry clay, sets our feet upon the rock, opens our mouth to praise him for what he has done to rescue us out of our sin and even to deride our enemies who mocked us. Isn't that glorious? The Lord, absolute and unique rules, and rules to give us gladness. Verses 3 through 8, a second part. The Lord's rule reverses the rule of sin. The tragic history of the world can really be told by, if you will, the rule of sin. And here's how I'm describing the rule of sin. Simple, easy to remember. The, bad, the big bad guys usually win. Don't you feel like this sometimes? The big bad guys always seem to win. The proud and the powerful prevail. The stronger, the stronger than me you get stronger. The rich keep getting richer, to use Hannah's vocabulary. Those who have children keep having more. You just can't stop them. We're just at their mercy. Okay, call it pessimism if you like. But it's a funny thing. We read about the bows of the mighty about those who were full. We read about those who had many children. But the rule of sin can't actually account for everything that happens in the world. The big bad guys, they die in the end. And very often all along the way, there are things that you might not see or expect. Trouble, heartache, loss, and sometimes a complete reversal of fortunes. And Hannah gives these to us. Those mighty bows? Broken. Those who are full, hungry and hiring themselves out to eat. And then she culminates. It's really right in the middle of this prayer and a centerpiece. Her own experience. The one with many children mourning and weeping, bereft, while the barren one produces seven. That's a rather striking sort of thing. And if all we were left with were these words, we would think the world is a bit of a chaotic and crazy place. But... Why don't things actually turn out the way that we expect according to the rule of sin? The big bad guys win. Because God is mightily at work just as he was in the Exodus to carry out his saving purpose for every one of his people, including the Hannahs. There's a story behind the story. The Lord is working at every point all along. He is... Yet, the sovereign ruler. History is his to make, not ours. And history is really the story of his awesome power to save and rescue his people by the Son of God. Our lives do rise and fall on the constant turnings of providence and divine plan. And things happen to turn out the way that they do because of God. God is overturns the rule of sin. Notice how she describes the Lord in verse 3. The Lord, unlike other gods, is a God of knowledge. Those other gods, they don't know, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't talk. The Lord knows. He knows the boasts of men. He knows the pride of men's heart. We don't always recognize it. Sometimes we look at the great and the mighty, and the prideful, and think, oh, that I might be like them. But God knows the truth of who they really are. And God not only knows, but as as Hannah says further, by him, actions are weighed. He knows what men are really capable of. And he evaluates and measures by what is accomplished and really done. Not just the words, good or evil, of men, but their actions. He knows what we can do. He knows what men hide from him or from others. And in the end, put into the scales, we are utterly weightless. But there's a nuance, again, in the way that this is phrased. The Lord doesn't just weigh. It's as if he really himself weights and regulates The actions of men. The point, in other words, is not simply the Lord knows everything and He's busy evaluating and judging, but as He is knowing and evaluating and judging, He also regulates their affairs accordingly. He puts the weight where it belongs. So where the proud seem to rule, there is always a a hidden but real and infinitely greater power at work. And this is what Hannah is referring to there at the conclusion of verse eight when she says that the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And this is reflected in Psalm 102, verse 25, among other places. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now, I've never built a house, though I've participated in such things. And when you build a house, if you're going to build a solid house, you have to dig down and put in a good, solid, deep foundation. But after you build a house, you can't see the foundation, can you? And yet the house remains upon the foundation. And were it not for that foundation, the house couldn't stand. It is organized by what is deep in the ground. It depends upon, it conforms to the foundation. And this is really a wonderful parallel to what Hannah is saying. The pillars, the foundations of the world have been established by the Lord himself. You and I live in God's world and so do those big bad guys. And the rebellious, they may live in this world, but it is still God's rule. It is still under his power, and he will have his way. Maybe to copy a little C.S. Lewis here, there is, so to speak, a deeper magic from before the dawn of time. There is something at work that will turn the world and the rule of sin upside down, or maybe we should say really right side up, because God is the ruler. There is no room... For pessimism in the Christian life, we sometimes give way to despair. Especially when we look around us at the culture, things seem to be getting bleak, or maybe we shouldn't say such things given what Ecclesiastes says. Don't say of of former days they were better. But my friends, the kingdom of God is advancing. Christ is ruling. He has all things under the right and proper order. And so his ordering comes out very clearly in these middle verses, 4 through 8. He brings unexpected, you might even say perpendicular, crosswise blessings. And Hannah gives us the gospel by telling us about the broken bows and the full who are hungry and the barren who bear. She understands something that is straight out of the preaching of Jesus. Think of the Beatitudes. Who is it that possesses the kingdom of God? Who are the really great ones? The poor in spirit. Who is it that is comforted? Those who mourn. Who is it that will inherit the earth, the big, the powerful, the technologically advanced? No, the meek, who submit. You see how the polarity of everything is reversed by this gospel. The rule of God in his son inverts all things. The strong and the weak switch positions. The full and the hungry switch positions. The barren and the fertile switch positions. Or to put it another way, it is better in God's kingdom to be weak, to be hungry, to be barren, to be a mourner, because then you are sure of almighty help. Are you tonight feeling some of this weight? Do you sense your helplessness? Do you understand something of the trouble of this life and your inability to meet it. Well, if that has humbled you before Almighty God, then you are in the best place you can possibly be. You will have his help. He rules and reverses the polarity of sin. This he will always do for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, if not always in this life, certainly in the life to come. And when our heart grips that reality, really lays hold of that, then in Christ, exaltation and glory it will certainly be ours, then we can actually begin to rejoice in the darkest trial because we know this is how Jesus rules. Now, these reversals are sure to come to us because the Lord reigns. Nothing is random, nothing is arbitrary. Indeed, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. He, the Father, put all things under his feet, the feet of Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you catch that? There is nothing that isn't under the feet of Jesus. There is nothing over which he is not the head. And so Hannah really brings us very early, very wonderfully, It says, Behold the gospel. And then it's as if she just can't contain it. She heaps up titles just as you would with perhaps an ancient ancient king or even in these days. Think of perhaps the the queen who has not only the title queen but many other titles besides. She adds to all the Lord's titles, not only actions, but as it were, overlays them with these glorious phrases of who he is in verses 6 through 8. The Lord kills and brings to life. Or we might say, the Lord is the killer and the bringer to life. The Lord is the one who is the bringer down to Sheol and raise her up. This is what he is. This is his nature. He is over all the one who is the poor maker and the rich maker. The low maker and the exaltationer. He does all. This is his title. This is what he has done. Complex attributions is what Hannah is doing here. Kind of doubly repeating the divine reversals that she's already announced, labeling what God is doing, has already done with the titles of God. In other words, who has this kind of might? Who has this kind of rule? This power, this glory, this name? There is no one like your God who completely overthrows the power and evil of sin. And so we get to the upshot. And it's back in verse 3 of this central section. Talk no more so very proudly. Shut your mouth if arrogance is going to come out. And here she is talking pretty directly to Panina, but really to all the enemies of God. And maybe to us, when we think highly of ourselves, just stop talking. Because there are times when our mouth actually needs to be stopped. Our future does not belong to us, but to the living God who rules and reverses the order of sin. Our mouths should be opened to praise and to honor him who has such titles and rights and who it is that has caused the world to be ordered as it is. Thirdly, verses 9 through 10. The Lord's rule exalts his king. Notice how we open in verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, those who love him, The wicked are going to be cut off. They're going to be perishing in darkness, sorrow, without sight, attacked on all sides, without any to protect or to help them, no light to guide them, but those who love the Lord, they will have his help. And this is the problem of the wicked. Ultimately, and you can see it all through this section, all through these words of Hannah, the problem of the wicked is that they rely upon the might or the strength of men. Verse 9. It is not by might that men prevail. Do you see how the cross is immediately brought into view here? Jesus Christ comes into the world and not by might, by strength, by technology, by title, by acclamation, by reputation. Not because he is beautiful or intellectual, but by the might of the spirit of God, Jesus Christ is victorious. Not by might, not by the strength of a man will a man prevail, but by the mighty Spirit of God. If Jesus had relied upon feeble human strength, the resurrection would never have happened. Which one of us could ever come out of the grave? But because he relies fully, entirely upon the Spirit, he is guarded in all his steps. The one who loves the Father best is kept by the mighty Spirit of God. And so what adversary can stand before him? Notice the Lord speaking of shattering them to shivers as they launch their volleys against his righteousness. They will not stand. Their argument is torn to pieces. The Lord alone is exalted, crashing in thunder, as it were, not just from signing, but from heaven itself. A terrifying word as his adversaries come like a storm. They are overthrown and there is no contest. But he will exalt And give strength to his king. He will give strength to his king. This is a solemn moment in the scriptures, a glorious moment, as Hannah begins to speak of, to sing about, but really to pray for the coming of God's king. It's utterly shocking. What king? what king he will give strength to his king who is that there isn't a king in israel we read at the end of judges in those days everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in israel what king no king yet but there shall be there shall be as was promised to abraham genesis 17:6 kings abraham shall come from you now more specific There will be a king. Moses declared that Israel desiring to set a king over them was not wrong. Sometimes we misread Deuteronomy 17 and think, well, or even what is going to come in 1 Samuel and think that perhaps Israel was wrong to request a king. No, indeed, you may set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. They needed a king. We need a king. But we need the right king. We need the the king that God will choose. And this is what... The whole record and collection of these books, Judges into 1 Samuel, into Kings and Chronicles, is really all about not just the necessity of a king, but the the selection of a king, the great king. Yes, they need David, the man after God's own heart, God's beloved. But it isn't just the claims of David that are being advanced. He is not an adequate king in himself. We need a king who will... Perfectly execute the justice and righteous requirement of God's law. And that's why this is, notice the beginning, verse 1. That's why this is called a prayer. Because we need such a one. We need the coming king, the Lord Jesus Christ. A ruler who cannot be usurped, be corrupted, can never, be, can never die, whose integrity is beyond all question, and even the rise and fall of empires and politicians, personal fortunes, failure and success and business, history's surprising turns, all of them tell us we need a better king. We need a great king. One who can, through all that is coming to pass, have the victory, a capable one to make wrong right. Notice what Hannah goes on to say. He will give strength to his king. And who is that king? He will exalt the power of his Messiah, his Christ. He will uplift the horn, the power of his anointed king. Special help, special rule to carry out the will of God for our salvation. Do you see? You just can't even miss it here. Reading on this side of the birth of Jesus, we just simply cannot fail to see that what Hannah is seeking, what Hannah is expecting, and what God will definitely give to a helpless and needy people is the rule of King Jesus. He will be lifted up. He will be exalted. And so Samuel, verse 11, is left ministering to the Lord with Eli, a priest in training. We're meant to expect great things of this. But perhaps the way to conclude is again in the words that we've already sung from Psalm 113 verse 9. This reversal of God's mighty providence, He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. That is the polarity of gospel power. To bring about life where there is no life. To give hope, growth, increase, fruit, joy where there is nothing to be glad in. My friends, our sins have done this to us, but our Savior becomes what we ought to have been. And Hannah by this is utterly transformed in praise. Do you see this? Utterly transformed in praise. And that song is picked up generation after generation to our own generation. But think again of Mary singing the magnificent song she does of the Lord In Luke 1, the king comes. The king is born. And that is transformative. To behold history in this way, to see things through this lens, the coming king puts everything into proper perspective and leads to ultimate joy. Let's pray. Our Father, We praise you for the good news of the gospel, for Jesus, who is the gospel, who came, lived, died for our sins, is raised up in glory. We adore and worship you for him whom you have given and set at your right hand, our prince, our savior, our king. And we long for the day when he will come again and with open and apparent power. Bring all that is wrong into the proper place, and all things be seen to be under his royal feet. Oh, give us perseverance to that day, faith to rest upon you, joy to look forward, and love that takes in with delight all that you have given to rule our lives by Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.